from the heart of our nation's capital, here's Family Research Council President Tony Perkins. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Washington Watch. Coming up on this Tuesday edition, concern is building over Russian actions near the Ukrainian border. They have not only shown no signs of de-escalating, but they are, in fact, adding more force capability. That was Pentagon Press Secretary John Kirby yesterday afternoon. North Dakota Senator Kevin Kramer was a part of a bipartisan delegation that met with Ukrainian President Zelensky and then briefed President Biden upon their return. Senator Kramer joins us in just a moment with the latest. And after being blocked by the Supreme Court in their vaccine mandate scheme for private businesses with more than 100 employees, the Biden administration announced today they will withdraw their OSHA COVID-19 vaccine mandate tomorrow. A lesson learned about government overreach? Probably not. But what other lessons do we need to learn about our government's response to COVID? Members of Congress, led by Dr. Greg Murphy, are asking that question. Congressman Murphy joins us later. Also on the topic of COVID-19, Wisconsin Senator Ron Johnson held a panel discussion yesterday entitled COVID-19, A Second Opinion. It has also been sound medical advice when dealing with a serious illness to get a second opinion, maybe even a third. Today is about getting that long overdue second opinion. Senator Johnson joins us later. And it is National School Choice Week, which has the wind in its sails this year as teacher unions like those in Chicago reveal for all to see what many of us already knew. The teacher unions could care less about the kids. We look at how parental engagement in education is not only upending the educational power structure in America, but it's also changing American politics. Meg Kilgannon, Senior Fellow for Education Studies at FRC, joins me with what is happening in Virginia on the education front and why it won't be limited to the Old Dominion state. And by the way, you can help it come to your state. Tune in later to find out how. The website, TonyPerkins.com. If you miss anything, it's all archived right there at the website, TonyPerkins.com. Our verse today, coming from our Stand on the Word, our two-year Bible reading plan, is Job chapter 9, verses 32 and 33. For he is not a man, as I am, that I may answer him, and that we should go to court together. Nor is there any mediator between us who may lay his hand upon both of us. That was Job saying he needed someone to take him before God. What Job realized he needed and didn't have, that mediator, someone who could reconcile him with God, well, we have that today in Jesus Christ, who is our advocate before the Father. To find out more about the reading plan, go to frc.org slash Bible. The Russia... Ukraine situation continues to escalate as Russia added more force capability and announced today a flurry of military drills across its territory after U.S. troops were placed on high alert. Yesterday, President Biden spoke with a range of European leaders for more than an hour, trying to keep the alliance together as fears mounted over an attack that U.S. officials say could happen at any time. The United States has taken steps to heighten the readiness of its forces at home and abroad so that they are prepared to respond to a range of contingencies, including support to the NATO response force if it is activated. Joining me now to talk about the latest news on the escalating Russia-Ukraine situation is U.S. Senator Kevin Kramer of North Dakota, who is a member of the Senate Armed Services Committee and who recently visited Ukraine and met with Ukrainian President Zelensky. Senator, welcome back to the program. 
Great to be back. Thank you, Tony. Well, let's uh, let's first talk about your visits, uh, your visit. But I, I want to before we get to that, the latest on this unfolding situation. Well, it's it's really kind of remarkable. I, I'm having a little bit of a hard time keeping up, as I think a lot of both allies and adversaries probably are with our president's actions. This this uh, movement with 8,500 troops putting them in in high alert um, seems a little bit like just trying to make up for calling, uh, you know, saying that if it's a minor incursion, you know, we may just want to talk about it. It's, it just seems like he's always fumbling around and sending chaotic signals, which I think are, are complicating matters a little bit. And I'm sure that his trying to keep the, uh, the NATO coalition together and the alliance together, um, is, uh, you know, part of the challenge, obviously, that he has, but isn't helped by, by these confusing signals that he sends. Now, are some of our NATO allies in Europe are not as concerned about uh, the Russian activity on the Ukrainian border as Americans are? Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, the stability of Europe, of course, is of vital importance to America and Americans. But you'd think it'd be even of more of greater importance to Europe, and and it probably is. But I, I do worry a little bit that um, it, it's not as shall we say, unified as we had hoped. There are a number, don't get me wrong, there are a number of European allies in Britain, for example, and certainly the Eastern Bloc states um, that, that are concerned about it and are very involved in uh, in the alliance. Uh, Germany, of course, has been a bit of a complicator. Uh, I, I don't think it's unusual to have an outlier, but an outlier that's as big and important in Europe as Germany is, of course, is a bit of a problem. But I, I consider that more of a of um, them being on the wrong side of this than than anything else. Well, one of the tools that the president spoke about early on last week and before was the diplomatic use of sanctions. But that runs into problems with some of our European uh, NATO allies because sanctions on Russia could affect their economy. So interesting point, Tony, and this is why we have to always be careful with economic sanctions, because there is splashback. You might recall that early on in the Trump administration, Congress passed a series of sanctions on Russia that he reluctantly signed. Uh, I actually went to uh, Kazakhstan shortly after that, and uh, part of my mission there was to talk to uh, the media and talk to the Kazakhstan leaders, Kazakh leaders, about um, the administration's interest in making sure that the implementation of those of those sanctions didn't harm our allies, mainly them. So you're, you're exactly right, and they're right to be concerned, which is why these kinds of things have to be negotiated far in advance. You have to have standing with your allies so that you can lead, and um, we've lost some of that standing in recent months and in, in the last year. And, and so building that alliance under an umbrella that makes sense, that punishes the people that need to be punished without punishing the region, allies, for that matter, Tony, uh, Americans, uh, you know, Europe, an unstable Europe is a problem for all of us. So you have to balance all of those things. I don't think the president has done a particularly good job of it. Um, right now, Congress is looking at a couple of packages, as you know, including a Menendez package, a Rich package. Uh, I think we need to have a bipartisan package that meets, um, you know, that meets the moment. And uh, but at the same time, you can't leave your European allies out in the cold. 
So, Senator Kramer, let's talk about that bipartisan approach, because you met with uh, President Zelensky there in Ukraine, and it was a bipartisan CODEL, um, members of both parties going there to meet. Tell us about that trip and your meeting with the president. Well, it was an important trip because we were there to do a couple of things. First of all, of course, to get information on the ground, and we did. And we had very important briefings with our State Department as well as with the Ukraine leaders. Uh, but also, and probably more important, more importantly, was to to relay a unified voice from Congress itself. Republicans, Democrats, there were four Democrats, three Republicans, uh, on, and uh, we were well briefed by the administration. We went with the administration's blessing, um, trying to, to be uh, helpful in, in their negotiations and, and uh, give them the best hand possible. And I think to that end, we were, we were pretty um, successful that, that the uh, Ukrainian leaders, including President Zelensky, saw this unified front. I think it gave him a sense of confidence. Now, that said, he expressed his dismay, as did all of their leaders. I, we met with their energy minister, uh, a foreign affairs minister, obviously, uh, as well as the interior minister, which oversees um, you know, the, their militias, their National Guard, police forces, things like that. Um, they all expressed concern about the Nord Stream 2 allowing that, you know, getting that green light to be built. And now in, in some of the sanctions talk, as you know, we failed. We only got 55 votes on the Ted Cruz sanctions, Nord Stream 2 sanctions, which would have implemented those sanctions immediately on the builders of Nord Stream 2. Um, the, the, uh, Democratic just for our, list, just yeah, for our the gas listeners' pipeline. benefit. Yeah, the gas pipeline. Yeah. But the gas pipeline again, in Germany. Th- that has complications with Germany. It, it, it does, which is part of why Germany, I suspect, part of why Germany's been so difficult to work with. On the, on the other hand, this is a failure on a couple of parts. It's short-sighted on Germany's part to allow a pipeline that, that really gives Vladimir Putin more leverage over not just Germany, but all of Europe when, when it comes to, to natural gas and energy. You know, I always say, coming from an energy-producing state, energy security is national security. To make yes. Europe more captive to Vladimir Putin uh, is really short-sighted. It may seem like a good idea in the short run, but not in the long run. But we've, we've facilitated that with our own policy in this administration. Thank you very much. Because yes. we were energy independent. In fact, we, we were exporting, exporting for the first time in decades up until this administration came in. Yeah, so like you know, President um, Trump used to like to say, and I appreciate so much, we were energy dominant. You know, independence was a goal. We achieved the right. dominance to the point of energy security. And, and by the way, Tony, a lot of people like to brag about um, uh, natural gas as a bridge fuel for uh, cleaner energy. Well, the reality is it is, but Vladimir Putin's natural gas when you consider the life cycle of it, which is everything from the, the discovery and production and then the transportation and refinement, is 41% greater in greenhouse gas emissions than American natural gas that would be liquefied and sent by ship. In other words, we have an American solution to this situation that, that Germany and the rest of Europe finds. And this is, by the way, why the European Union, one of the reasons, the European Union Parliament overwhelmingly opposes the, the, uh, the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. It's largely a German um, initiative that has allowed this pipeline to be built. But we, as Americans, to produce cleaner natural gas, we need to be more actively involved in a geopolitical solution, a uh, trade solution yeah. that, that provides you know, this security that we all seek. And we haven't made that case. 
you cannot decouple energy policy with national security. You just well you said. can't you can't Absolutely. do it. So I, I, before we run out of time, Senator Kramer, uh, quickly, your meeting with President Biden as you briefed him on the trip. Well, it was a you know it was a good meeting. I mean, it was is the seven of us and and the president for about an hour. It was via uh, you know video conference or Zoom, I think, and um, you know he was pretty engaged and. He pushed back on me when I said, I frankly think that we've handed Vladimir Putin a weapon with Nord Stream 2. Uh, he pushed back uh, and said, hey, listen, now that it's built, um, remember that that um, energy revenue is a very important thing to him. And so that becomes leverage for us. It's a plausible argument. I still think it's a flawed argument. I don't think it should have ever, ever been built. The problem is now it becomes a negotiating tool rather yeah. than because this is a bad pipeline, no matter what, whether we're you know trying to fend off the Russians or not. So we had a good discussion. I think felt like we were all in sync that we, we had a pretty unified voice. But then later that day, he held this two hour news conference where he suggested that a minor incursion might not require much of a response. And of course, that required a lot of cleanup. Yes, a major cleanup. So Yes, it did. Senator Kramer, always great to talk with you. Thanks so much for uh, joining us today. Always my pleasure, Tony. Thanks for the opportunity. All right, stay warm there in North Dakota. All right, coming up, some breaking news out of Washington. The Biden administration announced today that it is withdrawing its jabs for jobs requirement for large businesses. They'll withdraw the uh, order tomorrow. We'll talk about this and other COVID developments with Congressman Dr. Greg Murphy of North Carolina. That's next here on Washington Watch. Don't go away. Are you struggling to spend consistent time in God's Word? Then join Family Research Council on an exciting journey through the Bible. FRC's two-year Bible reading plan helps you to approach daily Bible reading with an intentional focus of diving deeper into the nature of God and how His Word speaks into cultural issues. By studying the Bible, we can see the grandeur of God unfold throughout the past. The Stand on the Word reading plan takes you through daily scripture in an engaging manner to help you stay grounded in God's truth. All wisdom comes from God, and He has given us the Bible as a way to understand the world. Start this adventure today with Family Research Council. When you sign up, we'll text you every Sunday with daily passages and questions that help prepare you for conversations with your friends and family. To begin this journey, visit frc.org Bible. With the current division and confusion of our culture, it is so important for Christians to root ourselves in the truth of God's word so that we are prepared to give a reason for the hope that we have. For this purpose, Family Research Council launched the Center for Biblical Worldview. The center applies the Bible and the historical teachings of the church to current issues. This helps Christians understand and live by a biblical worldview, know why scripture must be authoritative, and equips believers to advance and defend the faith in workplaces, schools, communities, and the public square. The experts at the center address and provide resources on issues like religious liberty, abortion, voting, marriage, and sexuality. To access free resources like the Biblical Worldview series, go to frc.org worldview. To get highlights of the latest work of the Worldview Fellows, including blogs, 
interviews, and publications, sign up at frc.org slash subscriptions. At Family Research Council, it is important to us that we stay connected with you and that you stay informed. With the increase in tech censorship of conservatives and Christians, we've decided to be proactive to make sure we don't go completely dark due to censorship. That is why we created a tech subscription platform. If we get canceled, you can stay informed and still find updates on faith, family, and freedom. How? Just text STAND to 67742 to sign up for our text alerts, and you will get FRC's content straight to your phone. Again, just text STAND to 67742, and you will get special alerts on the biggest stories of the day. You can stay informed with just a simple text. We want you to be able to stay connected with like-minded community and to always have access to our content. Stay connected and informed. Just text STAND to 67742. Welcome back to Washington Watch. I'm Tony Perkins, your host. So good to have you with us. Let me remind you of the website, TonyPerkins.com. Lots of uh, information there for you, and all of the program is archived there. Earlier today, the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, OSHA, announced that it will be withdrawing its jabs for jobs requirement for businesses with 100 or more employees. The announcement comes nearly two weeks after the Supreme Court slapped down the Biden administration 6-3 to blocking their rule, criticizing it as a blunt instrument that draws no distinctions based on industry or risk of exposure to COVID-19, end quote. Here to talk about this development and what more needs to happen as we evaluate our government's response to COVID-19 is Congressman Dr. Greg Murphy, who is still an actively participating, our practicing physician and a member in good standing of the North Carolina Institute of Medicine. He represents the 3rd Congressional District of North Carolina. He is a member of the House Education and Labor Committee, as well as the GOP Doctors Caucus. Recently, he was chosen to serve on the House Ways and Means Committee and the Health and Oversight Subcommittees for the 117th Congress. Dr. Murphy, welcome back to the program. Good afternoon, Tony. Hope you're doing well. I'm doing quite well. Congratulations on your new committee assignments. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. I feel uh, very fortunate and look forward to uh, doing some real good things in that particular uh, committee for the for the good of the country. Well, let me first get your reaction to today's announcement from OSHA. Yeah, I think, Tony, I, I mean, I think uh, this is long since overdue. And, you know, even President Biden, when he first came out to say this, he says, we're not sure this is constitutional, but we're going to do it anyway. And, you know, that's just the opposite thinking of the way it should be. It should be asked first, is this constitutional? And then should we proceed with this? The sad thing is, and I, I'll be very, you know, very transparent about it. I, I believe people should be vaccinated. I'm a physician. I've studied the literature. I believe those things should occur. However, I believe and I I firmly believe that's a decision that should be made between a doctor and a patient, not a citizen and a government, because as with any medicine, as with any surgery, the surgeries that I did today, there are risks and benefits to each. And those need to be explained rather than coming from above uh, as an edict from above. They should be explained and done something much more organically from a patient viewpoint. So we knew this wasn't this was just a trickery. Uh, an attempted trickery, rather, by the Biden administration to force people to get vaccinated. And uh, I knew it was I mean, I had the full uh, full thought was going to get thrown out and it was thrown out. And as so many of the things that this particular administration has been doing, 
is they're doing things underhandedly to try to fool the American people. And thankfully, the Supreme Court stepped in. And I think OSHA, the uh, regulatory body of it, finally threw its hands up and said, we, re we really can't do this. We have enough work to do. Um, let us just move on. Well, Congressman, a lot that has been done in the last two years in terms of the government's response to COVID-19 would fall into the category of abnormal. It's not what we've normally done. And, you know, with uh, it's like, uh, you know, every for every action, there's a reaction that not only applies to physics, but it applies to politics as well. And you led 16 other Republicans last <clears throat> week in sending a letter to the acting director of the National Institutes on Health asking to examine the impact of COVID uh, lockdowns and closures on the health of Americans. I mean, this is something that ought to be evaluated so we can consider that with our response to the next pandemic. Yeah. Again, Tony, we all talked about at the beginning, quote, follow the science. The sad thing is so many have happened with this particular administration, including the head medical official. And I'll just say it point blank. It's become political science rather than real science. What I did uh, with, our, with the assistance of uh, the uh, GOP doctor's caucus is we send a letter to the head of NIH to ask a specific question. There's a term in medicine called the WLL, the years of life lost. And if you look at who died from COVID, the predominant um, number of individuals, again, one individual dying from COVID was a tragedy. But the predominant number of individuals, those who are elderly, elderly, ones who say may have not had but a one to three year life expectancy at that, or perhaps they had some other comorbid illness that, that made their life expectancy shorter. So those are folks that we lost years of life to. But what I asked the NIH is to study now. That happened because of COVID. Let's see how many years of life lost we had because of our actions of COVID. Let us look at the lockdowns. Let, let us look at people being kept away from families, their churches, their friends, and the depression that ensued, subsequent substitutes that ensued, ensued. And then now we've seen for the first time ever 100,000 individuals died from overdoses. We also saw for two or three months um, the edict from hospitals. And I'm not saying it was wrong, but I just think it needs to be studied. Hey, stay home. Unless it's a true emergency, stay home. We need right. our hospital space. But sadly enough, we saw people stay home with severe chest pain or stroke symptoms or having signs of cancer that we do know died at home who could have obviously been saved in any other environment. And then we even take it further. And I won't I won't bore you with the details, Tony, but we have to look at our children, our schools, kids being locked out of an education for for at the beginning. Yes, we understood it, but it was way, way too prolonged. And we know that some individuals, especially minorities, especially those who live in rural areas, have been deprived of essentially two years of education. And those and those years of education, they will never get back. And we know the sequelae of dropping out of school and all of the other things that have health consequences. So this is where we ask the NIH, hey, study this. Let us see what happened because of COVID, not necessarily related to COVID. I mean, isn't that following the science, a scientific approach? You uh, you put forth a hypothesis, you look and see what happens, and you evaluate uh, your findings. Yeah, yeah. That's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to be objective in the science and not uh, and, and truly follow what it says rather than what we want it emotionally to say or whether we want it, what we want it politically to say, which unfortunately – uh, this particular administration's done a lot of. Uh, that, that's a final question for you, uh, Congressman Murphy. Are, are they afraid of what the facts will tell them? I do believe so, because it doesn't fit the mantra. And, you know, believe me, Tony, I, I'm in the hospital. I, I see my colleagues who have just been 
so overworked, the doctors, the nurses, the staff, just trying to keep people alive. But you know what, Tony? They showed up to work. They showed up to work this entire time. They weren't like some teachers union. And carefully, I'm not saying teachers. I'm saying teachers union trying to stay out of the classroom and depriving our students or, or other areas. And so, no, we need to find this information out. Enough is enough is enough. We need to stop hiring, right. hiding behind this and having the, the political left make a uh, make a heyday out of this crisis. Because if we don't, the next pandemic that comes along, we'll start right where we left off. And that would be Amen. disastrous for the country. Amen. Congressman yeah. uh, Greg Murphy, always great to talk with you. Thanks so much for coming on today. Thanks so much, Tony. God bless. Have a great evening. All right, you too. Coming up, uh, a dozen doctors and medical experts participated in a panel discussion yesterday to evaluate the response to COVID-19. You probably didn't see it in the media. Why? Well, we'll ask Senator Ron Johnson, who organized the event. Don't go away. We're coming back after this. What is religious liberty and why should you care about it? Simply put, religious liberty is the freedom to choose your religious beliefs and to live according to those beliefs. Why should we care about this freedom? At Family Research Council, we care about religious freedom because we believe that it is an inherent human right that all governments have an obligation to protect. Tragically, not all governments do. Religious persecution is a tragic reality around the world that is not often acknowledged by the media even though attacks on people of all faiths continue to increase globally. In scripture, God calls Christians to pray and care for the persecuted church, the downtrodden, and those who cannot help themselves. Therefore, we must be advocates for those persecuted for their faith. To access Family Research Council's latest resources and to learn more about religious freedom and what you can do to help the persecuted, go to frc.org slash religious liberty. Do you want to be able to stay up to date on conservative news? Are you looking for Christian resources to help you stay politically engaged? Then download Family Research Council's Stand Firm app. With all of our content available at your fingertips, you will conveniently be able to stay up to date throughout your busy day. The Stand Firm app will give you access to a variety of resources, such as our most recent episodes of Washington Watch with Tony Perkins, tweets, and other social media posts, and our latest blogs, updates, and publications. Additionally, you will have the opportunity to take action and make your voice heard by contacting your elected officials on the issues that most concern you. Visit the App Store on your smartphone or mobile device and search Stand Firm to download Family Research Council's official Stand Firm app. This is Washington Watch. I'm Tony Perkins, your host. Good to have you with us. The website, TonyPerkins.com. You can find out uh, contact information for all our guests right there on the website, TonyPerkins.com. Yesterday, U.S. Senator Ron Johnson of Wisconsin held a panel discussion on the global response to COVID-19 that featured about a dozen doctors and medical experts. Now, the aim of the event was to provide a different perspective on the pandemic response, what you're not hearing in the media, discussing what went right and what went wrong and what should be done now and what needs to be done in the future as we address future pandemics. You probably didn't see anything about it in the media, 
Why is that? Well, joining us now to talk about the panel discussion and why no one wants to report on this is Senator Ron Johnson. He serves on four Senate committees, including the Committee on Homeland Security and Government Affairs, Committee on Commerce, Science and Transportation. Senator, welcome back to the program. Well, Tony, thanks for having me on. So, Senator, um, I mean, you had doctors, medical experts who were there to kind of evaluate what's happening globally. But, you know, I, I looked and looked. It was so hard to try to find information. Most of what I found was a couple of negative articles. What are people afraid of when we have these conversations about what's going on? Well, certainly in the legacy media, uh, the big tech giants and the social media, as well as our public health officials, they cannot afford to be proven wrong. Uh, 889,000 Americans have perished in COVID. And of course, we've been listening collectively to a group of uh, uh, public health officials. Many of them don't practice medicine. Uh, Few, if any of them, have ever treated a COVID patient. And so what I tried to uh, provide the American public yesterday was a second opinion coming from doctors who have actually had the courage and compassion to treat thousands of COVID patients. They expose themselves to the virus. Uh, They've treated patients successfully using cheap, generic, widely available drugs. They've been around for decades with an incredibly strong safety profile. Um, And and so if if I've got a serious medical condition, I'm going to go to a doctor who actually treats that medical condition as opposed to some academic or somebody sitting in a federal bureaucratic office but that's not what we've done here, and that's certainly not who the, the legacy media has, has listened to. And so the bottom line is they can't afford, the legacy media, they can't afford to be proven wrong because if they did, the body count is being so high, the consequences of the censorship of their misinformation. You know, they accuse somebody like me of when I just tell the truth of spreading disinformation or misinformation. They are the ones that have suppressed this that have kept people from accessing early treatment, which just like any other disease, it's early detection, allows for early treatment, provides better outcomes. I mean, don't we do that with cancer? You don't want to wait till stage four. You right. want to catch cancer in stage one. And yet we're, we're, NIH, NIH guidelines to this day, if you test positive, is to basically do nothing. Go home, afraid, isolate yourself, maybe Tylenol, try and get monoclonal antibodies, uh, you know, the variants are moving on, making those a little less effective, but you can't get them anyway. Otherwise, just hope to and pray that you aren't sick enough, because when you go in the, in the hospital, they haven't really advanced their treatment in two years. They're still using remdesivir, uh, very little scientific basis for using that, quite honestly. Uh, so, no, this is a travesty that's occurred. I hope Americans start waking up. Yeah, that's another one of the abnormalities in this, that there's not been test over the last two two years and an analysis of treatments. I mean, we're still stuck. It's like we're in a time warp. Now, you had medical experts, as you said, those who actually have treated COVID. They've been involved in this. The structure of the panel covered what was identified as four pillars of pandemic response. What were those four pillars and what came out of the discussion yesterday? As- so Dr. McCulloch laid out these four pillars in November of 2020. Uh, it was that my Senate hearing with, with Dr. McCulloch, Harvey Risch, and George Fareed. Uh, after that, by the way, the New York Times wrote a column by the, or ran a column by the Democrat witness, Dr. Jha, who 
hold up an apartment, never treat a patient. They titled it the snake oil salesman of the Senate. But in that hearing, Dr. McCulloch laid out the four pillars. The first one is limit the spread. The second pillar is early treatment. The third pillar is hospital treatment. And the fourth pillar is vaccines. Now, those are the four pillars of pandemic response. We've completely ignored early treatment. Even worse than that, we, the health agencies, the Fauci's of the world, sabotaged early treatment. So it's still not very well available to most Americans. And as a result, and I agree with these doctors who say this, probably at least half a million Americans died that shouldn't have died. Because if you catch COVID, certainly in the first 72 hours, but first five, six, seven days, uh, you use these cheap generic drugs, you have a really good chance of surviving. And it looks like the government's sole focus has been on the fourth pillar, the vaccines. Is this driven by big pharma? I don't know how else you can include anything else. Uh, you know, the only drugs recommended by the federal agencies are the ones that are novel, expensive drugs by big pharma. All the other ones, and, you know, we, we've seen the charts with, you know, a, a large number of studies that show these things are effective. They don't recommend any generic drugs. It's all drugs, 500 bucks and above. Remdesivir is over $3,500 wow. a course. Well, Senator Johnson, we appreciate you staying on this issue, even though everyone has tried to silence you. In fact, this was not on YouTube. It's on Rumble because YouTube has knocked you off. But we appreciate you uh, continuing to try to educate the American public. Well, thanks for having me on, Tony. God bless you. All right, Senator Ron Johnson from uh, Wisconsin. And uh, I encourage you, you can watch the whole panel discussion uh, on Rumble. All right, coming up, seven school boards in Virginia are suing the state's new governor. For what? Well, we're going to talk about politics in Virginia over education and how it's going to be coming to a state near you real soon. Meg Gilgannon joins me next. Don't go away. Do you want to be able to stay up to date on conservative news? Are you looking for Christian resources to help you stay politically engaged? Then download Family Research Council's Stand Firm app. With all of our content available at your fingertips, you will conveniently be able to stay up to date throughout your busy day. The Stand Firm app will give you access to a variety of resources, such as our most recent episodes of Washington Watch with Tony Perkins, tweets and other social media posts, and our latest blogs, updates, and publications. Additionally, you will have the opportunity to take action and make your voice heard by contacting your elected officials on the issues that most concern you. Visit the App Store on your smartphone or mobile device and search Stand Firm to download Family Research Council's official Stand Firm app. What is religious liberty and why should you care about it? Simply put, religious liberty is the freedom to choose your religious beliefs and to live according to those beliefs. Why should we care about this freedom? At Family Research Council, we care about religious freedom because we believe that it is an inherent human right that all governments have an obligation to protect. Tragically, not all governments do. Religious persecution is a tragic reality around the world that is not often acknowledged by the media, even though attacks on people of all faiths continue to increase globally. In scripture, God calls Christians to pray and care for the persecuted church, the downtrodden, and those who cannot help themselves. Therefore, we must be advocates for those persecuted for their faith. 
to access Family Research Council's latest resources and to learn more about religious freedom and what you can do to help the persecuted, go to frc.org slash religious liberty. Attention university students. Are you looking for an internship that will help you grow as a Christian leader and allow you to positively influence the culture? Then Family Research Council's internship program is for you. FRC's life-changing 12- to 15-week internship program will prepare and equip you for the next step in your professional journey. You'll enjoy a speaker series focusing on careers and callings, lectures from prominent conservative leaders, and weekly biblical worldview training. All of these offerings were created to aid you in your personal and professional development. As an intern, you will have the opportunity to work side-by-side with our experts in policy, communications, event planning, and more. The real-world experience you gain will prepare you to pursue a career of influence and make a difference wherever God calls you. This paid internship offers fully funded housing in the heart of downtown D.C., giving you the chance to experience our nation's capital. Visit frc.org slash internships to apply. This is Washington Watch. I'm Tony Perkins. The website, TonyPerkins.com. Yesterday, the school boards for three cities and four counties in Virginia filed a lawsuit against the state's new governor, Glenn Youngkin, over his executive order creating a parental opt-out for mask mandates in Virginia's public and private schools. The school boards, which collectively serve more than 350,000 students, say the executive order is a, quote, clear violation of the school board's constitutional rights and responsibilities, end quote. What about the rights and responsibilities of parents? We're here to talk about what's happening in Virginia and uh, what is most likely going to be happening in communities all across the country is Meg Kilgannon, Senior Fellow for Education Studies here at the Family Research Council. Meg, welcome back to the program. Thank you, Tony. It's great to be back. All right. Let's start. Uh, Several things happening in Virginia. And, uh, you know, parents have upended politics in Virginia, and it's not going to be contained to the old Dominion state. I believe it's going to be moving to states all across the nation. In fact, our listeners can help make sure that that happens. But before we get to that, while these schools, um, you know, clearly they're governed at the local level. Uh, weren't these school boards more than willing to bind, blindly follow any edict from the state government when it was run by a Democratic governor, Gover, Governor Northam? Yes, but let's keep everybody comfortable before we let them die, Governor. They were perfectly willing to follow the health care edicts from that governor. Uh, it, it's been it's been really interesting to see. We have all the media attention on these seven counties in Virginia that are challenging the governor's edict. When it's not even an edict, it's an executive order, which governors are certainly permitted and, and allowed to, to make. Um, he, some 135 school districts across the state are, are following the executive order. They were happy to have it ordered. Um, the order says that parents are the ones who will decide if children are masked in schools. So for these seven counties that, and four counties and three city school systems, um, there's nothing preventing the parents in those counties from sending their children to school masked. And if they go to school with the mask on, the people at the school will allow them to keep that mask on. Um, What the executive order simply does is allows parents to decide what will happen. 
will the child be masked or not? So the school systems in these in these localities, which the if you look at the last voting totals in the last election, I you know one of the largest margins for Yonkin I think was about 30 percent. So these are clearly Democrat majority counties and cities that are challenging this, and um, we'll we'll see what happens. Um, it's going to play out in the courts. The attorney general and the governor are asking the state Supreme Court to act quickly on this, and hopefully they will rule quickly on this. Um, but this is a really interesting case to watch, and it's a really gratifying case of an elected official who ran for office promising to respect and defend parents' rights. And the governor of Virginia, Glenn Youngkin, is actually doing that, and parents yes. are grateful. Yeah, they are, and it's it is it, because it factored so heavily into his election. Now, you uh, were in the Department of Education under the Trump administration, uh, of course, running at a, a kind of a different focus than the present Department of Education and most Department of Educations in the past. But the educational establishment, as long as there is a liberal in charge, they're like Briar Rabbit. They're happy to be thrown into those regulations. It's when parents come in to the equation that they get upset. And this is where Governor Yunkin has is given the educational establishment in Virginia indigestion because he also announced a hotline for parents when it comes to divisive material being introduced into the classroom. Tell our viewers about that. He did. Another of his immediate executive orders on his day one agenda, promises that he's kept, we're very grateful for, was to uh, ban critical race theory from classrooms in Virginia, to, to ban the teaching of divisive concepts. And he is um, set up a, an email portal for parents so that they can report problems that they see in their schools. Um, immediate, immediately after the issuance of that executive order, there were reports of a school in Fairfax County teaching a high school level course that included a bingo game, a privilege bingo game, where um, you were told that if you served in the military, if you lived with a military family, you had privilege. So the, the, the dynamics around this whole concept of who's privileged and who's not privileged and who's oppressed and who's the oppressor, these are the divisive concepts that we're talking about when the governor mentions this in his executive order. So it's clearly and, and, something that's needed. Right, because parents have had no place to turn. They've gone to school boards like they did in Loudoun County only to be, you know, in some cases, tackled and stuffed and cuffed, you know, cuffed and stuffed and taken away um, as they've raised concerns about what's happened there. But this, Governor Yunkin said, they want to begin to catalog and they want to deal with facts. So they're collecting all this information. Reminds me uh, of what uh, the lieutenant governor in North Carolina, Mark Robinson, did uh, last year or the year before. He he solicited from parents examples. They verified them. They put together a report and it is comprehensive and it is hard to refute when you have basically chapter and verse of what's happening in classrooms. Right. They did the same thing in Idaho. So it really is going on all across the country. North Carolina had their reporting portal and they were, the, you know, got plenty of examples of what curriculum that needed to be addressed. They did the same thing in Idaho. They had a, a committee that was set up to review that material. 
And um, these efforts are not just, you know, a political gamesmanship, as the mainstream media would have people believe that the right is just ginning up hysteria over critical race theory. Um, that's not what's going on. This is a case of parents who are responding to what's happening in the classrooms, which they were able to see because of the virtual learning during the pandemic. And now that parents are aware that the education their children are getting is not the education that the, the parents got in schools, this is a very different model of education that focuses not on learning, but more on indoctrination and activating children as radical activists who become change agents in society. Right. So parents, especially those of you who are living in Virginia, because the governor has asked for this, you need to help him out. And, you know, have conversations with your kids about, hey, what did you learn today? What were you taught? What did you hear? And and report these things. And it's better if you can actually get, you know, screenshots or copies. Not too many schools have textbooks anymore. Everything is kind of digital. But if you can get it, and then provide that information to the hotline for the governor. I don't know that I have the hotline. We'll see if we can't get that up on the on the website. But I certainly encourage you as parents to be involved. I mean, here we have a governor who's saying, I need your help. I need to help. I need your help cleaning up the schools. Now, um, Meg, to, to, to your point about this is all over the country, recently in, uh, in St. Paul, St. Paul school system, I mean, this this is outrageous. And again, it's not isolated. So, folks, when, when I talk about this, when we talk about this, don't think, well, that wouldn't happen in my school district, wouldn't happen in my city, wouldn't happen in my state. Don't be so sure. In St. Paul, the public schools, it's partnering with two organizations. And these are these are LGBT advocacy groups. They're indoctrinating toddlers. I mean, as young as three years old about pride and other equity agenda items, including basically choosing your own gender. I mean, these are kids that can't even tie their shoes, and we're trying to teach them about gender. I mean, Meg, what's going on? Well, this came to light because the Minnesota public school system is reviewing their state standards for social studies curricula. And so um, the, just like the governor of Virginia is asking parents for help, um, parents all across the country are giving help, whether they're asked or not, and we're very glad to see it. Parents have discovered this um, curricula and reported it to the folks that are reviewing the social studies material. And it is really, um, really incredible that it does target children as young as three years old with messages about their gender, their boys that could be born girls, their girls that could have been born a boy, non-binary identities, um, the kind of thing that encourages the questioning of identity in very unhealthy ways in children at ages that are really not capable of making these kinds of discernments. When, when a child is at age, you know, they know boy, girl, good, bad, <laughs> Pretty much, you know, things are in very limited categories in that age range. They're not equipped to deal with this kind of thinking. And it's all done in many cases away from and without the knowledge of parents. In fact, it's hidden from parents. And it doesn't stop just with the toddlers. I mean, it goes all the way through. There was one handout uh, that the Parents Defending Education presented. 
It uh, told teachers to ask students for name and pronouns and to refer students to the name gender change request form. And, of course, all this is done without parent parental information. Another group, their uh, Outfront Minnesota, their website includes links to programs that provide free chess binders for folks 24 and under. And for any trans person who needs one and cannot afford one safely, they can obtain one. And even has a way for you to have it sent to someone else's home so that your parents won't know that you're getting this. This is happening in the classroom. The thing that's really dangerous about those kinds of efforts is that the parent will be deliberately kept in the dark as a not safe person for this uh, non-binary student who's identified themselves as such at school. But the, the school will partner with groups like this group that's providing the chest binders, and they will refer children into groups that are for ages 14 to 24, for example. So these are not necessarily safe environments for teens to be engaging in groups of that age range. And certainly it is not appropriate for schools to refer them into those groups without parental permission. Right. This is just and, and, basic. And Well, it, it should be basic. What should be front and center for our schools is maybe, maybe, maybe they should think about teaching our kids to read and write and do mathematics. Um, and, and what was pointed out in St. Paul, the students, they're te- they were tested proficient in their proficiency in reading, and only 33%, only 33% of the students are proficient at their grade level in reading. That's down. That's actually dropped since 2019. 21 tested proficient in math. That's down nine points. So, we're, we're doing all of this other crazy, nonsense, make-believe stuff, but we're not teaching our kids to read or to do math so that they can compete, not only globally, but just compete and get a job locally. Right. And the the, the, the thing that's so interesting about the case in Minnesota is that it's it's been revealed that the, the for example, the social studies uh, review of standards that's happening. You have an ethnic studies curriculum in California that is targeted as a high school requirement, and they have, for the first time ever, made ethnic studies a requirement for graduation from high school. Minnesota is having a, oh, wait a minute, let me see if we can do better moment, and deciding that they're going to have ethnic studies throughout the K-12 curriculum in each grade, and they're reviewing the standards to that end. And so parents really need to to stand up and serve on these committees that do this sort of work of reviewing the standards like this. Um, you'll get there's a lot of gaslighting that goes on of you know well if you don't have a PhD in history or economics you're not qualified. That's not true. You're talking about K to 12 education. If you're a high school graduate or a college graduate even, you have. Confronted well, this material before, and you can <laughs> review these by, standards to see if they're appropriate or not. By today's standards, if you can just read the word that's on the bathroom, <laughs> you could qualify. Um, because obviously there are some that cannot do that much who are leading public education. All right. Uh, before we run out of time, Meg, there are ways that people can make a difference, and they're doing it all across the country, running for school boards, being involved We've got a FRC Action has a training session coming up on school boards. Tell us about it. 
We are, we had our school board boot camp online in June that was really well attended and is still available at our website. But we are going to go to Raleigh, North Carolina and Charlotte, North Carolina. We'll be in Raleigh, February 9th, and we'll be in Charlotte, February 10th. And we will be hosting a school board and local candidate training uh, session in those two cities. We're really excited to offer this, um, this, these events in North Carolina to be out in the, in the states and to meet people where they live. The panels will feature experts from North Carolina, North Carolina uh, school board representatives and others running for office. Um, school uh, people in North Carolina who are familiar with the issues that are impacting that state, who can help help candidates uh, who are thinking about running, you know, understand what those issues are and speak intelligently about them. Um, so we're really excited about this event. We're partnering with uh, North Carolina Values, Tammy Fitzgerald's group there, and the uh, FPC there in North Carolina as well. And um, you can register, you can find the registration links at frcaction.org slash schools. So All we'd right, love it we'll... if you live in those cities or anywhere in North Carolina, join us February 9th right. and 10th. We'll have a link up at TonyPerkins.com as well. Meg Kilgannon, always great to talk with you. Thanks so much for stopping by today. Thank you. And folks, check out the website and consider joining that training if you're in North Carolina. But whatever you do, remember what the Apostle Paul said, when you've prayed... When you've prepared and when you've taken your stand, by all means, keep standing. Have a great night. Washington Watch with Tony Perkins is brought to you by Family Research Council and is entirely listener supported. Portions of the show discussing candidates are brought to you by Family Research Council Action. For more information on anything you've heard today or to find out how you can partner with us in our ongoing efforts to promote faith, family, and freedom, visit TonyPerkins.com. Also, to leave a comment about Washington Watch, call our watch line at 1-866-372-7234. That's 1-866-372-7234.